things in this world are not as they should be. We learn this from an early age. My son, my youngest, is learning how to walk. He's been dragging his feet on this. It seems that he's most afraid of falling. And out of his fear of falling, every time he thinks of taking a step, he's a little risk-averse, and so he just sits down. He's learned in his 15 months of life that things in this world are not as they should be. And when he falls, there is pain. We learn this from the earliest age. We learn it as we grow older. Not only is there pain from falling and hurting ourselves in this world, there's pain from other people. Children learn early on that while other people can be their friends and be encouraging, that there are people in this world who will hurt them, who will pick on them, who will make fun of them. My kids are learning this as they are in their early days of kindergarten and first grade. But not only are things in this world not as they should be in terms of the hurts of this world, in terms of other people hurting us, but we know as we grow older that things are not as they should be in this world in our own hearts. We find in our own hearts as we grow that there are things inside of us that should not be there. There is evil. There is sin in our own hearts that comes out. And the older we get and the longer we live, we see more and more of the sin that is there in our own hearts that is coming out and that hurts others. The Bible tells us the answers to such questions. Why is the world not as it should be? Well, the Bible answers this question. And the answer of this question is that This world is now a fallen place. We are now fallen people. And sin is now a part of our lives and society and will always be so until Christ returns and makes all things new. We are in a study in the book of Proverbs. And in our passage this morning, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 19, the wise father is speaking to his young son and warning his son from those in this world that could do him harm, but also warning him about the sin that lies in his own heart that could lead to his own destruction. Turn with me, if you will, to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 19. Quickly, for context, Proverbs is in the Old Testament, in the the part of the Old Testament called the wisdom literature. Proverbs is God's education course in true wisdom. And as we've been finding so far in the book of Proverbs, in these early chapters, there is a dialogue going on between a father, a wise, godly, older father, speaking to his young son and helping his son understand something of this world. To understand something of God and who he is, something of how it is that we relate to him, through faith and through trust in his provision but also to understand more of this fallen world and how we, conduct, how we can conduct ourselves in this world in a way that is pleasing to Him and is kind to others. As we begin, let's read Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 19, and I'll read the whole passage. Proverbs 6, verses 1 to 19. This is God's Word. My son, 
if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his fingers, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. This is God's word. As we look at this passage this morning, we'll have one main point. One main point. If you're taking notes, this is it. In a fallen world, God's people are discerning, diligent, and holy. In a fallen world, God's people are discerning, diligent, and holy. And we'll have three sections this morning. Verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 11, and verses 12 to 19. Let's begin with point number 1, verses 1 to 5. Discernment, point number 1, discernment. The Father begins this section... And we can see the section divide with the often repeated, my son, my son. As he begins this next section, he addresses his son again in chapter 6 and verse 1. My son. Here there is a warning against a kind of gullibility when it comes to the people of this world. The father does not want his son to be imprudent, to be gullible, and to put himself in a dangerous position with money. The concern here is the concern of becoming shorty or to put up security for your neighbor. This was a custom when it came to loans in the ancient world. The way that it would work with a debt or with a loan is that a banker might be willing to loan out some money at interest. But if it was someone that the banker didn't know, someone who wasn't connected with the community, we see here a neighbor or a stranger is in mind. The banker would want to have someone else 
who was willing to back this person who's asking for the debt to be a security. Something similar to what we have in our day and age in terms of a cosigner. The father here is wanting his son to not be gullible and getting himself into a situation that might destroy him financially. Now whether the son here is drawn into some kind of get-rich-quick scheme with a stranger who was coming into town and offering perhaps, if you help me get this loan, I will help you get into a business that will help you make lots of money. Or whether there is just some foolish generosity happening here as he feels bad for someone who needs some money. Either way, regardless of the specific situation, the father is telling his son, do not get into such a situation. And here, if you have gotten into such a situation, get yourself out of it as soon as possible. Proverbs has a lot to say about debt. The Bible, too, has a lot to say about debt. As Proverbs will say later, debt is uh, servitude. The Proverbs will say later that the borrower is servant to the lender. In other words, debt is a kind of slavery where you are enslaved to the person who has loaned it to you and you now must make sure that you pay them back, but usually, almost always, when it comes to debts, with interest. We spent some time uh, the last six years in Dubai with people who had gotten themselves into very difficult situations with money and with debt. Many people had come to Dubai and continue to come to Dubai to make money. People will come and they will want to get a job there to be able to make money and to send it home and to provide for family. And there are lots of banks that are willing to offer loans to people, but almost always at an exorbitant interest rate. Time after time, members of our own church would come to us with unbelievable debt situations that they couldn't get out of. The, the bizarre thing about Dubai was because it was such an expat place, 90% of the people from other countries, people had come from so many different places, they were in many different situations financially, and often with great pressure to provide for needy family in other countries, often third world countries. We had one situation where a man in our church, a man and his wife were trying to fly back home for a holiday, for a vacation, and the government stopped them and wouldn't let them leave because a bank had notified the government that they owed a lot of money and they were afraid of this person skipping the country and not being good on the debt that they had taken out. The only way the government would let them go is if a friend, someone they knew, would come and bring a passport and become security for them and to actually put themselves on the line in terms of security to be sure that if this person left, the other person would be responsible for their debt. This is what's in mind here in Proverbs chapter 6. The father does not want his son to be gullible and get himself into a situation where someone else's debt becomes their responsibility. Debt is slavery, and it can destroy a life. And there are bankers who will seek to take advantage of those who are in need. That doesn't mean every banker will do this, but there are bankers who will. And there are evil people that will seek to rob you of money or to put you on the hook for money that they take and perhaps run away or skip the country. 
A father wants to be sure that his young son is not taken advantage of. And look at the command here. If you've gotten yourself in this situation, work as hard as you can and do whatever it takes to save yourself from it. Go, beg, nag, do whatever it takes, but get yourself off of the hook for such a debt. This debt may destroy your life. In the ancient world, it may require indentured servitude that you would, if you couldn't pay, then become an indentured servant to the, the person who loaned the money. And you would have to work a certain number of months or years to get out of such debt. It may be even your family would be drawn into such servitude. Debt like this can be crushing on a life and crushing on a family and be a burden not only on the person, on his wife, on his children, maybe even generations afterwards. This passage talks about the importance of considering how we use our money and considering how we make decisions when it comes to money. Do you know that God cares not just about your heart and not just about your actions, but even about your actions when it comes to money? Money in the Bible is not seen in and of itself as a bad thing, but it is seen as a dangerous thing because of the risks that come with it. Risks in terms of debt, like this, or risks in terms of what it can do to our own hearts as we desire the things that money can give us, security or material possessions. The Bible treats money with care, with carefulness, as it does with anything that can become an idol in our lives. The Bible holds out money as something to be dealt with carefully, but to be dealt with, as all things in this world, as a Christian. When it comes to money, the Bible talks about money as a stewardship. It is something that God owns, that He has entrusted to us, that He will hold us responsible for in terms of what we do with it. Money is a stewardship. Money, like everything in this world, it's not our own. It has been given to us. And God will one day hold us responsible for what we did with it. And when it comes to our money, the Bible is clear that we should be careful with it, that we should not get into undue debt, and that we should have an attitude of being careful with our money so that we can be generous to others. The situation that the young son may find himself in when it comes to being security for a neighbor would keep him from being able to be generous to others. As you consider uh, this section, I'm not sure how it might apply to your life. I'm not sure the particular situation you may find yourself in this morning. It may be that you have debt. It may be that you have crushing debt, whether it's from credit cards or loans or some other situation, maybe even a family situation. Lack of wisdom of parents or relatives has put you in a situation of debt. Let me encourage you, if you find yourself in such a situation, to not hide it, but to seek help and counsel from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If you find yourself in such a situation, we would love, as elders, as pastors, to find some way forward to help you Get out from under such crushing debt. This passage should also cause you to have caution before you put yourself in a situation of debt. Not all debt is bad, but the Bible is very cautious when it comes to debt because of how dangerous it can be. Perhaps the most specific application 
as we think about this in our day and age, would be the situation of a co-signing. Now, is the Bible saying that you should never co-sign for anyone? Well, no, I don't think so. Here, the person in mind is a neighbor or stranger, which means someone that perhaps you don't know as well and that you don't have an obligation towards. Would it be good for an older person to co-sign for a child? For a young person that doesn't have enough credit to get that car or that house? Maybe. But if you do take on such a co-signing security, know that you are committing yourself to needing to pay off that debt if it's required of you. You must not think of it as a potential, but an actual responsibility. And do not take it on if you're not able to take such responsibility. As we finally consider this section, Matthew Henry says, if we should be so diligent in freeing ourselves from such financial debt, how much more so should we be diligent in making sure we free ourselves from the spiritual debt that we have as sinners? The Bible holds out Christ as the one who came to pay the ransom that our debt deserved. Hebrews chapter 7 actually says that He is our guarantor, our guarantee, our security of a better covenant. That Christ Himself came to assure that our debt would be taken away and that we would be able to enjoy all of the benefits of that contract, which is so much more than a contract, the covenant that God has made with His people through the blood of Christ, where He ties himself to us and makes us a part of his family and promises to be our God forever. How wonderful is our God who is our security forever. The second section, point number two, verses six to 11, is diligence, diligence, discernment, and now diligence. Let's read this section again. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The father here knows that there are dangers both outside of us when it comes from wicked people who would seek to take advantage of us but the wise father also knows that there is danger inside of us danger inside of his young son a danger here towards laziness he holds out here word to the sluggard The sluggard is a a character in the the book of Proverbs. And he's drawn, the the portrait of the sluggard is drawn in a very dramatic way. He's drawn like a caricature, like a cartoon. We are to, at times, when it comes to the sluggard, laugh at what a ridiculous person he is. But he's drawn in such a way to help us see the extreme of such laziness, of such idleness. The sluggard here is to consider the creation, to consider nature, to be ashamed when he looks at the animals around him who are so active, when he is so lazy and inactive. He takes, the father takes his son to school 
teaching him the ways of the ant. I love the illustration here. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Now, I don't know if you watch nature shows. Maybe you do. Maybe you've had an ant farm as a child, and you've been able to watch ants as they work. And maybe you know that ants have queens. Here it says that they don't have any chief officer or ruler. What is meant by this? Is it meant that they don't have a queen? No. What's meant is that they don't need taskmasters standing over them, barking orders. They don't need drill sergeants giving them commands for them to get up and to do something. No, they are self-motivated. They are active. Anytime you see an ant, they're doing something. And anytime you drop those crumbs where there are ants around, they find them because they're active. They're constantly working. And they're working to prepare for a future day. A day when the harvest is finished. To make sure that the harvest is ready and that there's enough food during the winter. It's similar to the story of Aesop's fable of the the grasshopper and the ant. How the ant is diligent working and the grasshopper is being lazy and playing and singing all summer long. But then when it comes to the winter, the grasshopper is hungry. And the ant has nothing left over to share with the grasshopper. Here, the father is telling the sluggard to learn from such diligent animals. To take them as an example. To learn from them. To be diligent and to prepare for a future day. To not be lazy. To not procrastinate. To not push off work. You see how he holds out the sluggard as the the person who loves sleep. There are later proverbs that talk about the sluggard. Sluggard is like a door on its hinges, going back and forth, back and forth in bed, tossing and turning, but will not get out of the bed. The sluggard is also the one who is self-deceived and full of lots of excuses, often ridiculous excuses. There's a proverb that says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I can't work, it's too dangerous. The sluggard is self-deceived, often not aware of the laziness in his own heart because he is full of excuses. But the sluggard is an embarrassment both to parents and to employers. There are proverbs that talk about the sluggard being shamed to the father and to the mother. And also the sluggard being like smoke to the eyes to the employer. A pest, an annoyance, a frustration. This sluggard is talked about in extreme terms to help us get a sense for laziness in an extreme way. But what we are to do with such a situation, with such a a person being described, is to see characteristics in this person that are there in our own hearts. To not just think that this is someone out there that has nothing to do with us, that we are to laugh at and look down on, but that we are to learn from so that we don't become such a person. Do you see what... Uh, Do you see how how the sluggard begins in verses 10 and 11? The sluggard begins by little bits of procrastination. Little bits of extra sleep. Little bits of hitting that snooze button over and over. A little sleep. A little slumber. Just a little. Just a little folding of the hands to rest. And what happens as the sluggard procrastinates and procrastinates and procrastinates? Suddenly poverty comes upon him. Want suddenly, like an armed man that you don't expect. It comes out of nowhere, and next thing you know, you have nothing. This is the end of the sluggard. He becomes 
poor. The sluggard is a burden on those around them. But there will come a day where the sluggard will come up empty-handed. How, do we, how are we to think of a passage like this in terms of applying it to our own lives? Well, at the very least, we must begin by considering laziness when it comes to work. Because that's the primary thing in mind here. Laziness is the more general category. Idleness has to do specifically with a willingness to work or a lack thereof. The New Testament has a lot to say about the importance of hard work, working to provide for needs. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that an able-bodied man who refuses to work to provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And in 2 Thessalonians, as we read in our scripture reading, a person, an able-bodied man who refuses to work, must go through the process of church discipline. It's clear that there is a responsibility, particularly upon men who are husbands and fathers, to provide for family. The sluggard here is a person who is refusing to work and requiring others to work and to provide for them. They are burdening other people. In the, in the Thessalonian context, it looks like there were super spiritual people who were deciding, well, Christ could return at any time. I want to devote myself to waiting for Christ's return. And with such spiritual ideas, they would refuse to work and then expect other Christians to work to provide for their needs. And Paul says when it comes, with, when it comes to someone like this, do not feed them. Do not even give them a meal. Make them feel those hunger pangs so that they go out there and get a job and work and get a paycheck in order to provide for their own needs and then to be generous to others. So I wonder, brothers and sisters, if there are any among us who are in a situation like this of being the sluggard, refusing to work, maybe even putting off, taking work until it's that perfect position you're looking for, rather than being willing to take a job in order to provide something for your needs and for others. But such a passage like this has all kinds of applications because there's laziness in our hearts in all kinds of areas. Let's focus just for a minute on laziness when it comes to our spiritual life. Many of us can be hardworking. We can be even workaholics when it comes to work. Finding our identity, too much of our identity in our work and in our career. But then when it comes to our other responsibilities, we can be lazy. We can have laziness when it comes to our relationship with God. It's fascinating that hard work is talked about in the Bible, not just in terms of work and a job, but even in our our spiritual life. Timothy is called to be a workman in the way that he works and labors in the Word of God and studying it. It says to study and to show yourself approved. Dividing the word of truth. Labor is also talked about in the area of prayer. The Apostle Paul talks about Epaphras in Colossians as someone who is always struggling for you in prayer. He's praying for his fellow Colossian brothers and sisters in Christ by laboring in prayer. The Bible talks about prayer as, as work, as labor, and as something that we should be diligent to labor in. To not be lazy when it comes to our our spiritual life, but diligent, active, taking initiative. 
we should also be diligent in our responsibilities at home and in the church. It seems, seems that men are particularly guilty of a kind of laziness and abdication when it comes to responsibilities outside of our jobs. We can be lazy and inactive when it comes to having the kinds of conversations that we should be having at home with our wives, with our children, with our fellow members in in church. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to not be lazy spiritually or lazy in your responsibilities at home and in the church, but to be active, to be taking initiative for the good of others. In this way, we can be like our Savior Jesus, who was not lazy but active who took the first step to pursue sinners like us that were actually running away from him. He was not lazy, but active. He took initiative to bring salvation to sinners like us. And he, he came to earth, was born as a baby, lived a perfect life on this earth in the place of sinners like us, and even pursued us sinners that we were all the way to the end, to death as he labored to take upon himself our sin. If you're here and you're not a Christian, Christ has come in order to stand in the place of sinners like us through his life and through his death. There is hope in Christ that your sins can be forgiven. Even your sins of laziness can be forgiven and you can be changed in such a way that you become a new person, a person that is full now of the Holy Spirit and new desires, a desire that includes a desire to be active for the good of others and to be pleasing in the sight of God. That's point number two, diligence. Point number three, holiness. Point number three, holiness, verses 12 to 19. Let's begin by reading again verses 12 to 15. A worthless person. A wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. The father continues his discussion with his son, speaking to his son about the the wicked man. This seems to be a warning to the reader in two ways. First, to be on guard if we are to encounter such a, a man or a woman, to not be surprised that there are such people in this world, and to expect to encounter such people, people who are wicked, people who are dishonest, people who seek to deceive. But there also seems to be here a concern, not just a warning to beware of such people, but to be searching for the ways of such a wicked person in our own hearts and in our own lives, knowing that we are naturally wicked and prone to such wickedness. We are naturally prone to such evil ways. Look at this wicked man who's described here. He's a worthless person, a wicked man. And he's particularly known for his deception when it comes to his speech and with his actions. It's almost comical, the way that it's laid out here. He has crooked speech. He's winking. He's signaling with his feet and pointing with his fingers. He has this perverted heart that's devising wicked ways. 
What is this describing? Well, it's describing somebody who is finding ways to deceive people, to take advantage of people. Or, with his words and with his signals, to divide people, to win people over to themselves and to get people to distance themselves from others. They do this through deceptive speech. Such a a man, such a, a wicked person, is not trustworthy or truthful. You cannot trust them to speak the truth. They will do whatever it takes to get the things that they want. Here, the the emphasis seems to be not only on deceiving people, but with the result that he would divide people. It's a, a divisive person. It's interesting how it happens, dividing people. It happens through words. Through, it says sowing discord. This is like sowing seeds that are going to grow up uh, to a crop. And with little words, little comments, little criticisms or critiques of other people, little bits of backbiting, little bits of slander, they are sowing discord that will divide people. This can happen in different social settings. It can happen in families. Someone's words, someone's comments can divide families. It can actually cause the kind of division that stays divided for generations with feuds and families. This can happen as well in the church. It's interesting, the things that are talked about in our passage that are spoken about in the New Testament as situations for church discipline. Turn with me really quickly to the book of Titus, chapter 3. Apostle Paul is calling the the church at Crete that Titus is helping to establish to be those that are honest and those that speak kind words and those that avoid fights and quarreling. I'm going to read a portion here of Titus chapter 3. Look at what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. What's his reason? Verse 4. Sorry, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others. And hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The kind of wicked person who deceives, who speaks evil of others, who seeks to divide the church of God, 
you must treat that sin not as something silly or something to be ignored, but as something that is incredibly dangerous for the church. Unity is a gift from God. The unity that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ was bought with Christ's own blood. But such a unity in practice is incredibly fragile. It could be broken through just a few words, through just a few comments that grow and grow and grow until there is discord growing up among us, division, fights and quarrels and disagreements. The father here in Proverbs chapter 6 is warning his son to beware of such, per, of such a, a person and to beware that he does not become such a person, a person who causes division. Look at the next section, verses 16 to 19. These characteristics of the wicked person then are, are, are added to in verses 16 to 19. And look at how this section begins. Are these just some bad habits to avoid some unwise things to eliminate from our lives? No, look, what does the writer of Proverbs say? There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. These aren't just small things to be gotten over, bad habits like chewing your nails. No, these are things, the kinds of things that all of us have in our lives and in our history that God hates and that are an abomination to Him. Look at the list. Haughty eyes, that is, proudful eyes that look down on others. Look down our noses at others, thinking that we are better than this person or that person. A lying tongue. Who among us has not lied, has not used our words to deceive? Hands that shed innocent blood. Whether literally through killing others, or through the kind of anger that the Lord talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, that is, anger in our own hearts, that is, in itself, a kind of murder. Verse 18 a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. A list like this doesn't leave any of us off the hook. A list like this is too close to home. You see, things are not as they should be in this world because things are not as they should be in our own hearts. We are full of wickedness. Wickedness that is evil and wickedness that our Lord hates. And not just that He hates, but that He will deal with. Because all evil will be punished. The only question is whether we will take that punishment ourselves in eternity in hell, or whether that evil will be taken by another. You see, Jesus Christ came for wicked people like us. He came and died on the cross, not because He was wicked, but to take upon Himself the wickedness that was ours. To take upon Himself the punishment that our wicked deeds deserve. Because our wicked hearts and our wicked lives deserve punishment. And so when Christ came, He stood in the place of wicked people like you and like me. He came to pay the penalty that our words that our hearts and that our actions deserved. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you will never be able to be wise, as Proverbs is calling you to be wise, 
unless you first humble yourself and ask the Savior Jesus to take your sins for you, to turn from your sins, to repent, as the Bible calls it, to turn away from our evil deeds and to cast ourselves on the mercy and grace of our Savior Jesus. But if you are here and you're not a Christian and you see in this list things that the Lord despises, take hope and take heart. There is hope for you if you will turn from your sins, if you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ. We know that His mercy is more as we sang this morning. He has on the cross displayed grace and mercy that is enough for you, that is enough to cover every one of your sins and to wash you clean and to make you new. As we consider this passage, all of us, even as Christians, even those of us who have been made new by the Lord, should be able to see things in our lives on this list that we are still taking part in now. Things on this list that are still there. Prideful looks, lying tongues, and excitement to go and to do evil. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to repent of these sins, to not give in to them, to continue down such a path of wickedness. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to pursue one another in honest and open relationships. Don't be like this wicked man who is two-faced, one person in front of, 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 of one and a different person in front of someone else, going around seeking to turn people against one another seeking to win people over to themselves. Don't be such deceitful people, but let's be open and honest people. The kinds of people that are more concerned with our sin than with even our own reputations here in the body of Christ. We should be those who do whatever it takes to root out such wickedness in our hearts so that we can be such wise men and wise women, wise sons and daughters of God who are able to represent something of what He's like through our corporate body together. Yes, as we look at this fallen world, and as we look around, things are not as they ought to be. But let's take heart that one day, there is a day coming, in which life in this fallen world will be over. The struggle that we're in because of the wickedness of others, and because of the wickedness in our own hearts, will soon be over. There is a day coming when we will no longer have to say things are not as they should be because things will finally be not as we deserve them to be but perfect as God has designed it to be when one day those of us who have trusted in Christ will experience together perfection. Perfect hearts, perfect minds, perfect bodies. No more pain, no more crying, no more hurt. There is a day coming when we will be in God's presence with Him forever, delighting in Him perfectly, able to be a help and an encouragement to each other perfectly, and able to enjoy fellowship with God and with one another perfectly. That day is coming soon. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, we know that we are in a world of wickedness. And Lord, we know that we are the ones to blame for such wickedness because it was our sin that led to this situation. 
Lord, we pray that we would, as your people in this world, be able to conduct ourselves with wisdom in a fallen world. Conduct ourselves with discernment, with diligence, and with holiness as you have called us to. We know that this can only happen through Christ. And so we pray that it would be so among us by your strength, by your power, and by your help until Christ returns. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.